Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I was carrying around like an extra 50 pounds around the midsection, you know, like typical 40-year-old middle-aged dude who's just been working too much and not taking care of himself. So I was like, I want to feel like I felt like, you know, when I was a swimmer, and I want to be able to enjoy my kids at their energy level. I don't want to walk around lethargic and tired and lazy all the time. With this new approach to my daily plate, I had this resurgence of energy, and I actually had a desire to like move my body once again. But every day that went by, I realized how happy it made me. Like I was feeling joy. Like I felt like I was slowly becoming myself again. The simple things of like after a workout when you feel depleted and you're standing on the pool deck and it's a nice warm sunny day and you feel the sun on your shoulders and you're just like, that was what I was looking for. And I was starting to recapture that. That's ultra athlete Rich Roll. And this this is episode 35 of the Plant Proof Podcast. Friends, welcome back. Great to be here with you again. I hope you're doing well. For first-time listeners, thank you so much for joining us, for gracing us with your presence. I'm Simon Hill, the host of this show, author, nutritionist, and physiotherapist. In today's episode, I sit down with the all-round gift to humanity that is Rich Roll. Rich is an ultra-athlete, author of multiple books, including his memoir, Finding Ultra, and a podcast host who in his mid-30s was forced to course correct and make some pretty dramatic changes to his life. Having overcome adversity, putting in the work to endure long-distance ultra events, and sitting down to speak with many of the world's best minds, Rich is uniquely placed to help us all go inwards, contemplate our lives, and make the required changes to find more meaning, purpose, connection, and happiness. I feel extremely honored to have had the opportunity to catch up with Rich and record this. It was a conversation I very much enjoyed. I find his story, introspection, and self-awareness so inspiring, as I'm sure you will too. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. I'll catch you on the other side. Welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. Happy to be here, man. Thanks for uh, coming all the way downtown to make it happen. <laughs> this this could be an ultra endurance podcast. Yeah. <laughs> what time, how long do we go for? <laughs> uh, we'll try and keep it 90 minutes or so. Okay, cool. <laughs> you fueled up? <laughs> yeah, I'm good to go, man. Yeah. You had breakfast, lunch today? Uh, breakfast. Yeah. What did you have? Green smoothie. Is that how you start every day? Pretty much. Yeah. Let's start leafy greens. <laughs> Dark leafy greens. Yeah, we had something similar. We had, we just had a smoothie bowl at um, Beaming. Mm. Uh huh. In LA, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was good. But one thing that I find very interesting here about Los Angeles is that you can walk in and, and spend 10, 12, or $14 US on a smoothie or a, a smoothie bowl. 
which at least at least right? yeah <laughs> if you go to Erwan for lunch you're not walking out of there uh without shelling out at least 40 bucks and and what's crazy is <laughs> for the australian listeners the the australian dollar is very weak right now so that's you know twelve dollars fourteen dollars is is over twenty Australian dollars. Yeah, but what's the craziest thing that I find is particularly around Venice because I was staying in Venice first, and you walk out of these places like Moon Juice or Cafe Gratitude, and then you see the disparity between people. You see a lot of homeless people. It's crazy to think that people are dropping so much money on food, yet there's people outside that can't even afford food. Is, is that it's something? A, it's that, a huge problem. You know, I think that that speaks to the kind of vast expanse, you know, not only between the haves and the have nots, but how this whole wellness movement, whether you're vegan, plant-based or otherwise, has been kind of co-opted and marketed as something that is available, you know, only to the well-heeled. The truth is that's not the case, but yeah, if you're in Venice or you're in certain pockets of Los Angeles or or other places like New York City, and you go into these Tony high end restaurants or, or or smoothie bars, juice bars, yeah, you're going to drop a lot of cash, and you're going to feel like, oh, this is what wellness is all about. And you know, it, it this is a problem. I think that that anybody who's active in this space needs to be mindful about. And and I think it's incumbent upon us. I think we all shoulder a certain responsibility to try to find ways to communicate this message to, to all people, irrespective of socioeconomic class. Because the truth is, plant-based foods, plant-based diet, it, it, it's essentially pauper food. You know, we're talking about rice and beans and whole grains and, you know, plant foods close to their natural state. Now, you can tie them up in a bow and uh, create a fancy presentation and charge somebody a bunch of money for that and make them feel like they're healing the planet or their bodies. but I'm not so sure that that is in the best interest of, you know, the mass populace at large. And the, I guess the, the number of homeless people in LA, especially, is it something that you sort of become a bit immune to? You've lived here for what, 30 odd years? I've lived out here like 22 years. I lived in San Francisco. I've lived in New York. So I've lived in a lot of places where, uh, you know, homelessness, I mean, in San Francisco, it's, it's even more evident. Right now we're in downtown Los Angeles. We're in a kind of cool, groovy neighborhood called the Arts District, but five or six blocks away is Skid Row. And all of it, I don't know if you drove past it on your way in here, but it's literally almost like a refugee camp. It's just, it's like a tent city where people are literally living on the streets. Uh, and the juxtaposition of the haves and the have-nots sort of living on top of each other, I think, you know, makes you more mindful about the, the cuteness of this problem. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you I have the solution to that. And I do my best to not become immune to that problem. But it's very real. You know, what, it, and, and I, would, I would imagine you're bringing this up because... That juxtaposition doesn't exist in Australia to the extent that you see it here. Yeah, it, it certainly does exist, but not. It's a, it's a little bit more in your face here. And you mentioned like Skid, Skid Row, which I've mm. read about. And is the government here, are they sort of proactively talking about solutions and, and what they can do? Yes and no. Uh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I, I'm not purporting to be an expert on this issue. There are certain areas of Los Angeles that are more homeless friendly than others, like Santa Monica, the Santa Monica, Venice area, the, the, the regulation, the regulatory landscape is, is quite lax. 
and permissible to homelessness, which is why you see a larger aggregation of homeless people there. Um, There's a lot of community activism around tending to the people on Skid Row down here in Los Angeles. I'm somebody who's, who's a longtime member of the recovery community here in LA. And I've participated, you know, time and time again with, you know, taking meetings to Skid Row and, and sort of going down there and feeding people and, and trying to take care of them. Not that that, you know, there's always, we could all do more, but I think we really need to, in order to solve the problem, it's, it's, a, it's a bottom-up solution. You know, we need to provide more social programs and we need to create a safety net for people that fall through the cracks. If you do uh, an analysis of, of what leads people into this predicament, a big driver is, is mental health, you know, and when people don't have anywhere to go, when they're struggling with their mental health, they often find themselves in this situation where they can't find employment and there is not enough of that social net in place to take care of these people and provide them with the treatment and the resources they need to get back on their feet. And you mentioned that we're, we're in the arts district right now. Must be very different to your your home is up in the hills, right? Like near is it Calabasas? Yeah, yeah like sort of in between Calabasas and Malibu, uh, in the Santa Monica Mountains. So uh, this this must be stark contrast. It's it's a contrast. <laughs> yeah, it's a contrast. We were chatting before the podcast. My eldest daughter is fourteen, is in ninth grade, and she got into a performing arts high school, like the performing arts high school. It's a large uh, public school, but difficult to get into. She's a visual artist. She spent a year preparing a portfolio to try to get accepted and she had to defend her. It was a whole thing. She got in, which is amazing, but it's a two-hour drive from our home. And in order to support her in, in the pursuit of her dream, we have decided to rent this space downtown. And my wife and I are now trading time, spending time with her downtown because we have another, a younger, I've got a younger daughter who, who goes to school in Malibu still. So it's a lot of moving pieces and logistically challenging. But, you know, my family really supported me in the pursuit of my dreams. And we kind of operate our family like this collective where we're mutually supporting each other. And now it's Mathis's turn. So we're trying to show up for her. Amazing that you guys have just leapt, leapt straight straight into this. What are you going to do? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know what the options, you know, it's like we, we, we tried to figure it out six ways to Sunday. Like we're, all right, can we do this drive? You know, we did that for a couple of days. We're like, well, that's not going to work. And we tried Airbnbs and then maybe a couple of days down. And it was like, you know what, like in order to make this sustainable, like there's just no way around it. Like we're going to have to dig deep and, 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 you know, rent this place and try to figure out how to, you know, reformulate how we live our life to make it work. And, you know, I could, I could look at it like, oh, this is an inconvenient or a burden, but instead we're kind of embracing it as a new adventure and a new chapter. And, and when I look at it through, you know, that lens, it's actually kind of cool and fun. I've been like, I'm used to running on trails and now I'm like running around these warehouse districts, like taking pictures of street art and like, you know, exploring this whole part of Los Angeles that I know nothing about, despite the fact that I've lived here, you know, the better part of my life. And is this considered like a, a safe area, like a gentrified area? Do you, it's okay to be walking around at night and everything like that around here? Uh, yes and no. I mean, you, you got to watch your, you got to mind yourself a little bit. I mean, if you walk down the street, there's broken glass from cars getting broken into and stuff like that. I would say right where we are right here is relatively safe. And at night it's young people and there's bars and restaurants and, it, you know, there's kind of a hipster vibe to it. 
but you only have to go a couple of blocks in either direction before uh, things look very different. So yeah, you have to be a little bit more on top of your P's uh, and Q's. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think at your home, you sleep in a tent a little bit? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. I've, <laughs> I've been, uh, oh God, how do I explain this? Everyone's like, what's the deal with the tent? <laughs> you know, yeah, I've been sleeping in a tent for almost two years now, pretty consistently. I don't have a tent downtown. A bunch of people are like, Where, what about the tent? That's what I was going to ask. Is it up the I was top? Like, I could, well, it's, it's funny because like, like I just said, Skid Row, like everyone's sleeping in a tent very close to here. I guess I could go down there and pitch a tent and be welcomed you know, in that community. I have not done that yet. But yeah, I started sleeping in a tent a couple of years ago because uh, I was struggling with my sleep. And I'm not sure if that's a function of age or, or perhaps maybe... Um, a function of what I've put my body through in the past. Um, as you know, when you're training very hard, it's easy to get a restful night of sleep. And I was putting in such huge weeks of training, like 25 hours a week and just exhausting myself. I'm not doing that now. Um, this year, I've kind of, I still stay fit, but I'm not like crazy fit like I was a couple of years ago. And my tolerance for training is so high that if I go out and run for two hours or ride my bike for three or four hours, like it doesn't, it's, it's like, like a not, it's not enough, you know? So no matter what I do, I, I don't feel that fatigue at night generally and, and sleep has become much more elusive. So at the same time, my wife likes the bedroom very warm. I like it cold. I know I sleep better when it's cold. And so we were in this kind of standoff for many months where she was under all the covers, freezing. I'm sleeping on top of the covers, boiling hot. She's not happy. I'm not happy. And then one night, as we sort of have done over the years, we have a flat roof at our, at our home in Calabasas. Uh, in the summer, we would, we have a, and there's a flat wall also. We would get the kids all up on the roof and do a slumber party and project movies on the wall yeah. and just sleep under the stars. And there was one night in particular where I just slept so incredibly well. And I woke up the next day feeling like a million bucks. I was like, I want to feel like this all the time. So I just told my wife, I'm going to start sleeping on the roof. She's like, go for it. Uh, but then there's a lot of condensation that happens. <laughs> I'd wake up like soaking wet. And I, so I was like, I'm getting a tent. And then it just kind of went from there. And I just find that I sleep better. And whether that's because... On some primal level, you're more connected to nature or whether it's the cool air at night or whatever it is, I just find myself feeling more rested when I wake up. So it's just kind of become this thing that I do. I slept, not that the winters are anything to, you know, they're not a big deal out here in LA, but it goes down into the low 40s, high 30s. And I slept through the winter, slept like the colder it is, just more blankets on top of me and I sleep great and, and I love it. So. It's a similar situation to myself at home, although I don't have a tent yet, but it's always myself getting up, opening the window to get some cold air and then the girlfriend closing it and putting the covers back over it. Yeah, I mean, it's a thing, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, A lot of people have told me to get the chili pad. You have a chili pad? So it's like a pad, it's like a little mat that you can put underneath your covers um, that you sleep on top of that makes it cold so that your partner doesn't have to be cold, but you can be cold and you can still That's cool. the same bed. So I'll probably check that out. But I would say on top of that, a very cool and interesting byproduct of sleeping in the tent is that I found it to be kind of a stoic practice. You know, I live a very 
you know, I, I live an incredible life and I'm very grateful to have, you know, the home that I live in and the, the opportunities that I, that I get to explore. But the fact that I prefer to sleep in a tent and my office is in a shipping container at the house. If we were there, you, I would show it to you. Race, race mentioned it. Yeah. 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 So it's like <laughs> I have a tent and I have a shipping container where I spend most of my time at home. And my world kind of revolves around that when I'm not spending time with my kids, my wife has reframed my relationship to the material world in a certain sense in that uh, if my fortunes should turn and I should lose, you know, a lot of the things that I'm grateful to have, um, I'm okay with that. Like, you know, I, I love my life and I hope it continues on the trajectory that it's on, but if it should all go to shit and go away, like I'm okay sleeping in a tent, you know, like, yeah. so, so my relationship, my attachment things that I have has been positively impacted by this experience. And I encourage anybody out there to uh, give it a try. There's more and more people starting to lead more sort of minimalistic lives. For sure. Yeah. yeah. It's a whole movement. You know, there's a whole movement here in Los Angeles, the minimalists, Joshua and Ryan, yeah, are, you know, those yeah, guys, yeah, them, yeah. Matt Diavella, who's the one who shot their documentary, who now has his own podcast called the ground up show. who does a lot of cool stuff on YouTube. Those guys and their kind of cadre of followers and other people doing similar things have really put minimalism on the map and made it cool and aspirational, which I think is, is pretty neat. You mentioned before that you've sort of changed up your training now compared to a few years ago, which I want to, I want to dive into that in a little bit. Mm-hmm. I know you've told your story probably hundreds of times now, and it's very well documented what you've done with your life. But in case there are some listeners from Australia who, who haven't heard it from you directly or maybe have heard bits and pieces, let's just walk through it and, and get, get everyone up to speed as to how you became this ultra athlete, this host of such an amazing health and wellness podcast and author, um, family man, husband, father. Take us back to where it all started and what life was like as a child for you, where you grew up, you know, were you part of a, a typical American family, that sort of thing? Yeah, sure. So I grew up in, in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., two loving parents. My needs were always met. But I was always a very kind of awkward, insecure kid. I was the kid who had difficulty making friends and didn't exactly show any promise or prowess in, in sports. You know, I was the kid who was picked last for all the team sports, anything involving a ball and eye-hand coordination, like I was hopeless. I had a patch on my eye because I have a wandering, weak left eye, glasses, headgear, like not a vision for you, particularly. And I was somebody who kind of felt like everybody knew how the world worked except for me. And I sort of walked around bewildered most of the time, trying to figure out how I fit, you know, into this social equation. You know, I struggled in school, I struggled socially, but the one thing I discovered that I was actually half decent at was swimming. And, you know, when you're a kid, if you're good at something, that's what you're going to gravitate towards. And, and it wasn't long before I kind of went all in on this sport, which was the one thing where I felt comfortable and I felt like I, I understood myself. And I wasn't particularly like the most talented swimmer in the area. There were plenty of kids that were much better than me. Uh, but I learned pretty early that I could bridge that talent deficit gap by outworking my fellow teammates. And I was part of a club swimming team and where there were all these national age group record holders and Olympic trials qualifiers and the like. 
And I became very intent on, on trying to be like them. And that was really my focus. And the more I invested in swimming, the more my school improved, such that by the time I was a senior in high school, graduated you know, near the top of my class, was one of the most you know, recruited swimmers in my area for all these colleges. Somebody who really kind of you know, had the world by the tail. I was still awkward and insecure on the inside, but on the outside, like I was playing this game of life pretty well. So I got into like all the colleges I applied to. I ended up going to Stanford, uh, where I was very much a, a uh, small fish in a big pond. Like the, at the time in the late 1980s, like that was the place to go to swim, like world record so you holders. you still swimming there at a high level. Yeah, I was, on the, I was on the swim team at Stanford, 85 to 88, and was training with guys like John Moffat and Pablo Morales and Jeff Kostoff, who, if you followed the history of swimming, I mean, these were the superstars of, of the era. We won two NC2A Division I championship titles when I was there, but I didn't score a single point. Like, I was very much, you know, on the bench. But I got to train with you were happy amazing, to be there. Yeah, I was... I was so happy to be part of this team. And I really felt like at home for the first time. But it was also around that time where I discovered alcohol, actually discovered it on my recruiting trips to colleges. It was very evident to me that my relationship with alcohol from the outset was different from that of my peers. Like, I remember the first time I got drunk and it was like wrapping a warm blanket around me and suddenly... I had this solution to every problem that I never knew that I had. Like, I was like, oh my God, I feel comfortable for the first time in my life. And I could go to a party and talk to a girl and crack a joke. And, and, so, and I just felt like at ease with myself in a way that I'd never experienced before. It's, it's hard to describe, but it's something that's very common amongst alcoholics. And that was something that started out fun and was fun for a long time. And, and I think it was actually, I would go so far as to say it was good for me. Like it brought me out of my shell and it, it, it taught me how to be a social animal. But over time, you know, it stops working. And what was originally fun starts to turn dark and that darkness turns into a need. And by the time I was in my late 20s, my life was starting to fall apart. Like I was a functional alcoholic for a long time. And I knew in the back of my mind that I had a problem with alcohol, but I wasn't ready to deal with that problem or let go of it or, or do anything about it until basically my life collapsed on top of me. I mean, it, it definitely killed my swimming career. I became just interested in having a good time in college. And that's not unusual. It's you know, true for a lot of people. But all of my aspirations and dreams started to take a backseat to, you know, where's the, where's the party? Like, where's the best party and how can I get there? Then I lived in New York City, which is like Disneyland for alcoholics once I graduated college. And that's where it really kicked into it. And what were you studying again? I was originally pre-med. And then two years into college, I abandoned that and was, I majored in American studies, which is like political science and English. Not sure what I wanted to do with my life. I never really thinking much about it. I was just, my focus was on what was right in front of me, which is making it to swim practice if I wasn't too hungover and <laughs> finding out where the party was that night. And that was basically it. And like I said, I was functional. I could still get my work done. And, you know, somehow I got into law school and got through law school while I was, you know, the drinking just slowly was escalating. So were your family, were they, because you're saying you were functional, 
people outside of your sort of social drinking circles, were they aware that you were drinking a lot of alcohol as well? Yeah. I mean, it was a, it was a while before people were like, Hey man, you you might want to tone it down a little bit, but you know, I was the guy who was the last to leave the party. The guy who's like, you know, when the beer's gone and he's drinking the half empties around the room, swallowing cigarette butts. And like, you know, it was like, and throwing up and saying the stupid thing and being the guy who does the embarrassing thing. And, you know, some of that's innocent. And then it just, it's, it's not so cute, you know, when you start to get older. And when you're in New York City, you can kind of, like I said, take that to a different gear because there's the party and then there's the after party. And before you know it, it's like 11 a.m. the next day and you're still going, you know, and people are going to work or going to lunch, you know, and that, that really was what it started to look like for me. You know, that all came to uh, a crashing halt when I was 31 in the wake of a wedding that went sideways on me that ended on the honeymoon. <laughs> two DUIs in a, in a two-month period, flying a 2.9 and a, and a 2.7. This was your own wedding? Yes. Yeah. That's a two-hour story. <laughs> basically, yeah, I had a wedding. It's almost like God or the universe designed this whole thing to make me, to snap me out of my denial. Like everybody that I loved was there for this wedding. I had like 12 groomsmen or something like that. And uh, it's a super long story, but ultimately like I ended up, we, I, I sent her home from the honeymoon and I have never spoken to her since this moment. Um, and I had been sober for six months, like white knuckling it. I went out after that. I was in so much emotional pain. It took me another, like, I don't know, eight or nine months of drinking before I was ready to finally get sober. You know, on top of that, like I said, two DUIs, car crashes, and just a, a slew of incomprehensibly demoralizing scenarios that I would find myself in. Blackout drinking, starting the day with a vodka tonic in the shower and sneaking drinks throughout the day and hiding my empties and just waking up in strange places, not knowing how I got there, like the whole deal. And, and throughout this time, were you still operating like day-to-day in your job as well? Like yeah, I was, a, I, was a, I was an associate at a law firm in Century City in Los Angeles, like a really good law firm. I was working with some of the top litigators in the city. I was working on a case with Robert Shapiro, the OJ lawyer. Like, you know, I was in the, I was in the thick of like LA law. I was very fortunate to be there, but I was hanging on by a thread. My second DUI, I got arrested going the wrong way down a one-way street in Beverly Hills oh, at like wow. three in the morning. And the arresting officer, and I blew a 0.27, I think. Like What's eight, the legal limit here? Oh, it's like 0.1 or 0.01 or something like that. Yeah, yeah, like, like 0.29, 0.27, that's, that's like blackout. Like most people, you know, my tolerance was so high. I was wondering how you Most people would be flat on their back, yeah. Let alone like operating a motor vehicle. They get pulled over. It's my second DUI in like two months. And the arresting officer takes my wallet and, you know, I get booked and I'm in jail overnight. Monday morning, my boss calls me into his office and he's like, I have an interesting phone call over the weekend. I'm like, oh yeah, what's that? He's like, uh, yeah, I got, a, I got a call from my friend, you know, the, the officer, like he knew the officer, because my boss represented the Beverly Hills Police Department and the LAPD in a bunch of civil matters. And he actually knew the officer that arrested me. So when the guy took my wallet, he saw my business card and he called my boss. I thought I was getting fired. I didn't get fired, but you know, my, 
employer was on notice and, you know, he didn't fire me, but, you know, ultimately it's a longer story, but I was starting to come apart at the seams and couldn't show up and, you know, couldn't, couldn't follow through on the tasks that I was assigned to perform. And, you know, ultimately, you know, I reached that point that you hear with sober alcoholics where they have that moment of clarity, where I just couldn't sustain this lifestyle any longer. And I decided to go to, uh, go to, go to rehab, go to a treatment center. And my boss was cool and supported that decision. And I thought, well, I'm just going to go do the 21, 28 day deal like everybody does because I've got this busy life and I got to get back to it because I'm so important. And I went to this treatment center, which was in rural Oregon. And for the very first time, well, prior to that, like I, it, it definitely dawned on me, like my life is not going in a good, what was it direction. was it like your friends and family sitting you down at this time or was this a realization that you came to on your own that you needed help it was a combination of, of both of those things i was never the subject of like a formal intervention where everybody sat me in a room but my parents had made it very like there was a series of events with my parents where they were very clear on like what was actually going on and they basically said listen you know, we know what you're doing, like you're totally out of control and we don't want any part of it. So if, and when you're ready to get help, we're available to you. But until then, like, don't call us, like we're done. And so basically alienated from my family, from my friends and teetering on getting fired, sleeping on a bare mattress on the floor in a crappy apartment. Like, you know, there was nothing romantic or rock and roll about it. Like it was just and your uh, health had just uh, your, your training and everything had just, Oh, there was no, no. I mean, once, once swimming was in my rear view mirror from college, like there was none of that going on. And it was, it was, it was relatively dire. And I was, I started to see an addiction me- medicine specialist shrink and I'd go in and I'd tell him what I was doing and he'd, he'd laugh and he'd be like, come on, dude, like you got to go to treatment. Like you're not going to solve this problem on your own. The problem that I was having, and I think this is what eludes most people who aren't familiar with how addiction really works, is that I was that person who could outwork everybody, right? And I had had success as a result of that character disposition. Like I was somebody who had a tremendous capacity for self-will. If I directed my attention on a problem, like I and I alone could solve it and I would rely only on myself to do so. And by virtue of that characteristic, I was able to become a world ranked swimmer. I was able to get into the, you know, into Stanford. I was able to accomplish all of these things that are difficult. So I couldn't understand why that wouldn't solve my addiction problem. Well, like, I'm going to solve this on my own, the way I've solved every other problem in my life. And the more I tried to do that, the worse it got, which was confusing and confounding and mystifying because that had never failed me before. And it was this shrink who was like, listen, that is not, you have to surrender. You have to let go of your ideas and allow other people to help you. You've got to let go. And I was like, I don't even know what that means. Surrender, give up. Like, how is giving up going to help me solve this drinking problem that I have? And it took a long time for me to understand that. And ultimately, you know, I reached that breaking point where I just, I, I, the, the pain of my daily existence exceeded the fear of the unknown. And that was the tipping point that made me say, okay, I'll, 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 I'll take your direction and I'll go to treatment. And when I got there, 
I was like, wow, like I thought I was a smart guy, but I'm literally in a mental institution. Like, I guess I'm not so smart. Maybe my ideas aren't so good. And I just started doing everything that they told me to do. Because I was like, I, I'm aware of the gravity of this situation. I never want to be in a place like this again. So tell me what to do and I will do it. And I will stop asking questions or trying to tell you why you're wrong and I'm right. Like, they're like, sweep the floor, you know, clean the toilet. I'm like, okay, you know, what does that have to do with not drinking? You know, I stopped asking those questions. And I started opening up and being honest about how I was actually living with the counselors. And I'll never forget this one counselor who said to me, like, listen, I know you think you're only going to be here for a couple of weeks, but based upon what you're telling us, you have a case of alcoholism that we typically only see in like lifelong drinkers, like dudes in their 60s. And I was 31 at the time. And he was like, you don't get this. If you don't take this seriously, like you're going to die. Like that is the trajectory that you're on. Um, and I think, you know, some months prior, I might've dismissed that, but I was able to really hear that. And that's where I was like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm in a hundred percent. And I ended up living in that treatment center for a hundred days, which is a pretty long time. What what were the key things that you took away from, from that 100 days? And what were, Mm -hmm. what were some of the other people that were there with you? Like, first of all, the other people. I mean, it was all walks of life. It was, a, it was a treatment center where there was a lot of people that were there by, by way of something called diversion, um, which is if you're a doctor or a pilot, like there are labor unions that get involved if somebody gets in trouble and they, rather than fire these people, they get sent to treatment centers. And this was a place where there were a lot of pilots and a lot of doctors. And I realized like, who are the two people that you completely relinquish control of your life over to? Like a surgeon- And the guy who's flying the plane and these guys are telling stories about like being loaded while operating or, you know, uh, you know, operating a plane or operating a scalpel. And you're like, shit, (laughs) there's a movie about that. Oh, flight. Flight. Well, yeah, my friend, uh, my uh, my friend, John Gatons, who I know from the recovery community, wrote that movie. There you go. Known him since I got sober. Yeah. So that was illuminating. But it was, you know all walks of life. I remember there was a priest, there was a poet, there were housewives, there was a nun who used to like buy tall boys. And like, you know, there were all kinds of people that would never find themselves part of a a singular community other than this one thing that kind of tied us all together. And And I really learned to like, love that. Like there's something really beautiful about a whole, like a wide swath of individuals who come from different backgrounds getting together to collectively solve this problem that we share. And what I took away from the experience, I mean, you know, it saved my life and it gave me a a new toolbox for how I approach my life. But I think the key thing, the kind of fundamental aspect of the whole, of the whole endeavor is that we're spiritual beings having a human experience and that there is, you know, that, that I am sober and I'm able to remain sober by virtue of the grace of something more powerful than myself, the power outside of myself. And, you know, I, I didn't come from a religious background or have a particular bent for spirituality. Um, and that's been a very kind of slow road for me to understand and grasp and embrace. But um, fundamentally, for me, recovery is, is spiritual. And, and that's really the underpinning of, of how I navigate the world today. And, the lens through which I kind of perceive everything. 
So they, they started to get you to look at the world differently during those 100 days? Very much so. And from the, after the 100 days, you moved back to LA? I did. I came back to LA. I went back to my law firm job. They had you know, been supportive of me being away. And I figured, well, while I was there, it became very clear, like I'm living somebody else's life. Like my whole life was premised on this American dream, you know, like go to the best school and study hard and, and, you know, show up early for work and stay late and climb the corporate ladder and make partner and all that kind of shit. Right. And implicit in that is this idea that that's, what's going to make you happy. And I kind of hung my hat on that but it was becoming very clear that that was not working. So I was having this existential crisis about my career because although I could will myself into performing these lawyerly tasks, it wasn't like, it was I was like this is not what I, you know, I looked around the firm and then all these people, these partners, and I was like, I don't know if I really aspire to have any of their lives. Like, what am I actually doing here? But I went back and worked there. My, my promise to myself was I'll work there as long as, as I was away to kind of repay that, repay that, you know, debt and gratitude. And I think I stayed there maybe a year after that until I was so burned out and it was so clear, like, I cannot do this anymore. Like I just fundamentally am unable to perform this job. And I went to my boss and just said, I, I, you know, I got to quit and like, I can't do this anymore. I'm not going across the street for more money. I don't even know what I'm going to do. I only had like two months of savings it wasn't like I could go, you know, cruise or anything like that. Um, but I just knew I couldn't do it anymore. And I just, I walked out without any plan whatsoever about what I was going to do, which was terrifying because I'd never, my whole life, I was a safety seeker. Like I, you know, I was all about security and like being upwardly mobile. And here I was like walking away from this path altogether that I had invested so much time and energy in, in pursuing. So that was, that was frightening. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book. plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. And then the next day, was it straight into what next and, and thinking about something that would be more fulfilling for you? Is that what you went? Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, was, it was a 10-year journey, you know, uh, of trying to figure that out. And, you know, I wish I could tell you, like, I walked away from the law and started, you know, following my passion. And, and, and that's not really how it worked for me. I don't know how, it, you know, for how many people that does work. In truth, what happened was, you know, my phone started ringing with some friends of mine in the entertainment business, writers, producers. Hey, can you look at this deal? I know you're not at the firm anymore, but like, can you help me with this thing? And before I knew it, I just found myself kind of practicing law as a solo practitioner um, independently. And then one of the cases that I was working on at my old firm, the client called me and said, hey, I know you're not there anymore, but I still need help on this case. Can you come and help me? So... I continued to practice law. I needed to make some money. It was the one skill that I had. And I just started doing it kind of more on my own terms, which gave me a little more flexibility and freedom. And I did that for many years. I had 
periods where I was by myself. And then I had a law firm with a couple of friends and then I was on my own again. And then I had another partner and then I was on my own again. And I kind of flip-flop around different incarnations of practicing law for several years, but all along kind of slowly sliding out of it and becoming less and less interested, like doing just enough to like pay the bills. And that's, you know, where other things started to come into my life that became more important. This is sort of during your mid to late thirties, is it? Yeah. So mid to late thirties. And meanwhile, you know, still not exercising, you know, fitness wasn't part of it at all. In fact, what I now only understand in retrospect is the extent to which I took a lot of those addictive tendencies and like put them into workaholism and also emotional eating, like unhealthy lifestyle habits, because I was in a lot of emotional pain over unresolved issues having to do with my marriage and all the wreckage that I created as a result of my drinking and using, but also just feeling like I was not living the life that I was meant to be living. And rather than kind of addressing that head on, I was medicating myself with fast food and, and unhealthy lifestyle habits and you know, anything like, okay, I can't drink anymore. I can't do drugs, but I can like watch a shitload of television and eat a ton of McDonald's, you know, and that will kind of allow me to numb out in the same way that alcohol would. And I did that for a long time. So all of this was kind of building throughout my thirties, this existential crisis and this mounting, you know, kind of health predicament that finally those two things sort of collided with each other shortly before I turned 40. And just before we get into that, so what I find interesting, when you left the 100 days, in, it was in Oregon. Mm-hmm. When you left that and you came back, you, you, you didn't have another drink since then. You were able to just completely go sober. Totally 100% sober. About seven, coming up on seven years ago, I did have a one-day relapse. I've shared about that on my podcast before. I was in Hawaii after Ultraman 2011. It's a long story, but I had that slip and I found myself in an A meeting that night after just a couple beers. So it was a pretty lame relapse, but yeah, I've been sober. You know, that, that mishap aside since 1998. And you mentioned drugs in sort of the legal circles and when you were out drinking, was, were drugs fairly prevalent in, in LA and New York at that time? Yeah, I was never, um, I was never a big drug user, you know, I smoke pot or, or, um, you know, take Vicodin or kind of a, whatever pill happened to be around, but it, that was never really my thing. I'm pretty much a purist in terms of alcoholism. I mean, living in LA, you go to parties in Hollywood, you see a lot of drugs. I was always terrified of cocaine. Uh, I'd seen it destroy the lives of, of people that I know. And I just knew in my heart of hearts very early on, like when I was still in college, like, man, that's probably the drug that I would love the most. And I just made it, I made a decision that I would never try it because I knew if I tried it once, it would be like game over. Yeah, wow. And so I just avoided it because if I don't know what that feeling is, then I'll never crave it. So at least I had that, the wherewithal to avoid that drug. Although had I gotten into cocaine, it could have accelerated the whole thing and brought it to a close many years earlier, but who knows? Sounds like everything's happened for a reason anyway. So let's go back to you at your late thirties where you said you weren't exercising and sort of everything came to a head. What, what happened next? All of this came to a head and in, in, in one evening I'd worked a long day at work and I came home late 
I think I hit Jack in the Box, the Jack in the Box drive through on the way home, picked up a bag of cheeseburgers that I was eating in my car, got home, family's asleep, started to make my way up a, a flight of stairs up to my bedroom and had to pause. Like I, I couldn't like walk up a full flight of stairs without taking a break. And I just remember having tightness in my chest and winded and a little bit bent over and thinking, this is not good. Like I still would look at myself in the mirror and see that Stanford swimmer, even though I didn't look like that anymore. Like that's how denial works. And it really felt like I was on the precipice of, of having something terribly wrong with my heart. Heart disease runs in my family. And I just remember being very scared in that moment. And it was like the lights went on and I just snapped another level of denial that I was having and thinking, I can't live this way anymore. Like, this is not sustainable. Like, I need to make some changes. Not only, it wasn't just, you know, oh, I need to go to the gym more. Maybe I should clean up my diet. I was like, I need to do something drastic. Like, it felt very similar to the day that I decided to go to that treatment center. It's like, okay, this is it. Like, this is that moment. And I think because I had had that experience of waking up and deciding to go to that treatment center, I had a a level of awareness about how a simple decision can change your life so drastically. Like by, by simply saying, okay, I'm going, my life was forever changed. And I felt like I was having another one of those moments on the staircase. I was like, this is just like that. It's the same feeling. Like I have that same sense of willingness, like that readiness to like really do something drastic and different. And sure enough, that's what it was. Like I was able to kind of grab onto that. And I knew I needed to do something kind of severe and significant to shock my system. So in the same way, when you go to a treatment center, you're in detox for a couple of days. Like I was like, I need a lifestyle and food detox. So the first thing I did in the wake of that staircase episode was to do like a seven day fruit and vegetable juice cleanse, which was something I'd never done before. I had no familiarity with and wasn't convinced that I had toxins that needed to be removed. It wasn't really about that. I was like, I need to do something really hard. That's going to feel like detoxing off drugs. And that's what that experience was like. You touched on the types of food you were eating, you know, around that time, but what was your typical diet? Like, I guess we we haven't really delved into it, say Mm -hmm. from your early twenties to that late thirties, early forties, what, what was rich roll eating most days? Just everything in sight. And I mean, my, my dietary habits were formed through my swimming career where I was training every day, like four or five hours a day, like through high school. In high school, I got up at 4.45 every morning, hour and a half in the pool, then two hours after school, same thing in college. And when you're training that much, like you just can't, and you're 17 years old, like you just can't eat enough. Like we would go after morning swim practice to McDonald's and it was not uncommon for me to eat like four or five bacon, egg and cheese biscuits, hash browns, pancakes. We'd go to the donut shop and my friend and I would like hammer, you know, a, a dozen donuts you know, after morning practice. You know, so I just, I, I didn't care. It was like calories, yeah. calories, And calories, you were burning so you know? much. In yeah, the I was pool. burning. When you're young, you can get away with that kind of thing, right? But then when the swimming career is done, you're stuck with those habits, you know, but you're not burning the calories. And the more unhappy I was with my life and my career, the more I found myself medicating through food. And for me, fast food hit the spot. So 
I was eating at, you know, McDonald's, Carl's Jr. Jack in the Box, Carl's Jr., In-N-Out Burger, Kentucky Fried Chicken, Taco Bell. And then when you're working late nights in a law firm, you order takeout. So lots of Chinese food and pizza and things like that. I was never, I never cooked a single meal, like throughout my 20s and early 30s. And, early and were you, ever. do you look back and think that in those days you looked at the food and knew that it wasn't healthy for you and just ate it anyway? Or were you sort of just unconscious to the fact of what you're putting in your body? I think there was a level of being unconscious. Yeah. And some of them you're like, yeah, it's probably isn't good for me. But also you have that sense of being bulletproof, like denial meets that sense of immortality that you have when you're young, I think, you know, because like I said, heart disease runs in our family. My grandfather, who was also an amazing swimmer, he was captain of the University of Michigan swim team in the late 1920s and Olympic hopeful, never smoked, was never overweight. And he died of a heart attack at 54 just two years older than I am right now, died when my mother was still in college and it was very traumatic for her. I'm named after him. I look like him. And she would say like, you cannot, you've got to be careful. And I'm like, whatever. Same James. You know, like, yeah, you don't, it doesn't compute when you're young. And I think that staircase episode, like really brought all of that into focus for me. So you, you did the juice cleanse mm-hmm. and you were, you're already married to Juliet. This mm-hmm. time. Yeah. So Julie's a little bit more sort of open to the healthy eating at that stage. Yeah. I mean, she wasn't fully plant-based at this point. She was essentially vegetarian with the occasional piece of fish once in a while, but she was a very healthy individual who was always, you know, immersed in some spiritual text, meditating, going to yoga, interested in, in healthy lifestyle and diet and, and the like. Whereas I very much was not, you know, and over the years, she'd be like, why don't you read this book? Maybe you shouldn't eat this. Maybe you should eat that. The more she pursued that path, though, the more resistant I I became, like I became calcified against all of that. So it was kind of a a landmark thing where I was like, hey, can you help me with this juice cleanse? She's like, really? Like, after all this, you know, were you making the juices? She, she kind of designed the seven day menu for me and it was progressed off of food for like two days and then slowly progressed back to food. So it was mostly vegetable based juices and smoothies, lots of dark leafy greens, a lot of garlic for cleansing the liver and some broths like with that were mostly beets and dark leafy greens, like steep in water. I don't remember exactly. There were some supplements that I took with that. Were these, but no uh, solid food. Were these uh, sort of unfamiliar, unique smells? And oh my God, are you kidding me? You know, I'm like, you know, eating French fries every day and suddenly like I'm drinking beet broth and like the first couple of days I'm lying on the couch. Like I really did feel like I was detoxing off drugs. Like I was like, oh my God, I couldn't move. It was terrible. But what happened was, I mean, first of all, like I'm an expert at, de- de- I've, I've weathered, you know, a zillion detoxes off alcohol. And one thing you learn is as bad as you feel, like you just have to stay in it and slowly it's better and better. And, and sure enough, that's what happened with this experience. So much so that by the seventh day, like I, I, I couldn't believe how good I felt. I was like, how can I feel this good? I haven't eaten any food in days and I felt amazing. And it dawned on me like how unbelievably adaptable and resilient the human body is that in just a few days of doing something, yes, perhaps drastic, but not that crazy. In just a few days, you could, you could so significantly alter 
how you feel and how you perceive the world. Like it was like the cobwebs were removed. I felt like a teenager again. My sleep was better. I could see better. My thinking was more clear, like all of these changes that I'd never experienced before. And that's what got me interested in trying to find it was like the alcoholic in me is like, well, I'm just going to do this forever. Like I don't need food anymore. Like I want to feel like this all the time. And Julie's like, come on, you know, come on, we got to, we got to go back to food. And, and I wanted to find a way of eating that would allow me to feel that good all the time. So from there, you and Julie sort of worked on changing your meals at home and how quick was the transition from that to a plant-based diet? It wasn't overnight. I tried a bunch of different things over a six-month period, a couple different diets and sort of settled into a vegetarian diet, which quickly devolved into very much a junk food vegetarian diet. I really didn't know what I was doing. I, sh- I should have watched, you know, it was like, this is before Forks Over Knives and Engine 2. And not that there weren't copious resources available to me. I was really doing an experiment with an N of one, like trying different things and seeing what worked and, and doing it very poorly and kind of fell into this groove with the vegetarian diet and, and slipping back into this kind of denial, like, well, I'm not eating meat, so that's healthy, right? But you know, how healthy are you if you're going to Taco Bell and just not putting chicken or beef on your burrito or eating Pizza Hut without the pepperoni? Like, you know, so no surprise, you know, after six months, I'm back on the couch and, you know, hadn't lost any weight, felt terrible again, and, and really had lost my enthusiasm for all of this. I was like, I gave it a go. Maybe at 40, you're just supposed to feel crappy. And was ready to kind of resign myself to that. But I realized the one, the one thing that I had not tried, because I think I was avoiding it, was going 100% plant-based. Before we go into that and what that looked like, what did, can you remember when you, when you were a lawyer or perhaps at uni, did you ever come across the term vegan? And what did you think about vegans? I had heard the term. I knew what a vegan was. I don't know if I knew any vegans in college. I'm sure I'd met one or two along the way. And I suspect that those people would pretty much fit the stereotypical bill of what you would imagine a vegan in the, in the early 90s <laughs> or mid 90s to look like. I just associated it with something I wasn't interested in, which was somebody with dreadlocks who's kicking a hacky sack and like following the Grateful Dead or showing up at protests or throwing blood on people in front of a retail store. And I was like, that's cool for, I had no judgment about that. I just couldn't identify with that. Like, cause it just wasn't something that I was interested in. And, and I think that was part of why I had some reluctance about trying to adopt a vegan diet because I couldn't see myself as part of that subculture. So you, you went through this stage as a vegetarian and you were having from the sounds of it mainly sort of processed junk yeah. food vegetarian and, and you didn't feel great. What resources were you looking at that made you think, okay, I need to go to Whole Foods and I need to, I need to go completely, I need to cut out all animal products? I wish I could tell you I read a book or that I had, there was some kind of resource that pointed me in that direction. Um, there was no podcasts. And- no, there was no, there was no podcasts. This is like pre everything we now know. I mean, there were like Die for a New America. There's plenty of books out there. I was not reading those books. 
if I'm being super honest, what happened was I'd done the vegetarian thing poorly. I felt like shit. I realized there was one more step I could take. And before I could really say I gave it a go, I needed to try to see what it would be like if I removed not just all the meat, but all the dairy products and the processed foods from my diet. And I was able to wrap my head around it because in certain respects, it's very binary. You know, what you learn in recovery from drugs and alcohol is that it's a very simple equation. Like you're either using or you're not. You can't like have a drink once in a while and say you're sober. Like there's a very clear demarcation line between somebody who is sober and somebody who is using. It's not gray at all. And I think that mindset lends itself well to adopting a vegan diet. I could go, all right, well, the rules are no meat, no dairy, nothing with a face, nothing with a mother. Like I can get that. Like I I got it. Like I'll step over that line in the same way I stepped over the line with drugs and alcohol and I will give this a go. It's not going to work, but I can say I tried it. And then I'll go back to eating cheeseburgers, guilt-free. That was the plan. What happened was very quickly within a week to 10 days, of eating what I didn't even know is called a whole foods plant-based diet. I had that sensation that I, that I had on the seventh day of that, that juice detox cleanse experience where I felt amazing. It was undeniable and it was profound. I was like, oh my God, this is what I've been trying to find all along. And I just discovered it. And I was like, damn, I guess I'm going to have to do this. Like I was not excited about it. I was like, I guess my life is going to have to be about this, like I had the fears and the trepidation that I think a lot of people have, which is it's so severe. It's so restrictive. How can I possibly maintain this or sustain it? But because I felt so good, I was encouraged. And that gave me the motivation and the wherewithal to try to learn at that point, okay, how can I do this right? Like, I don't want to be the junk food vegetarian guy. Like I learned that the hard way. I want to learn how to do this right. And what happened was it was around this time you know, this must have been 2000, what year would this have been? 2004? It was all about Facebook back then. Yeah, Facebook had just started yeah. around then, yeah. And at that time, everybody's connecting with friends I hadn't seen in a long time. And I was using it to connect with a lot of my old swimmer buddies. And every swimmer buddy that I friended, I'd look at their friends and see, oh, I remember that guy from even people I didn't know that well that I competed against, or I knew their names from that community. I was like adding as friends. And one day I'm scrolling through my timeline and I see a post from this guy, Rip Esselstyn, who's a guy that I had swum against. He swam at the University of Texas. He was two years older than me. We didn't really know each other, but we'd been at a lot of the same meets. He went to the same high school my sister went to. We had lots of mutual friends in common. And he was posting about this plant-based diet thing and this book that he was working on called Engine 2. I was like, what is this? So I reached out to him. I was like, hey, I don't know if you remember me. Like I swam at Stanford and blah, blah, blah. Like he may not have known my name. I don't, I don't know. Um, but I certainly knew his name. He was a very good swimmer. And we started to talk. I said, you know, I just started trying this. Like you've been doing this for like however long? Like really? I had no <laughs> idea, right? And so we started a little communication. And so I would, he really became like my first lighthouse. And I was like, wow, because he had had a successful career as a professional triathlete. He was first out of the water at the Ironman World Championships one year. Like I'd followed his career and I had no idea that he was doing that plant-based the whole time. I was like, wait, you can be an athlete and do this too? I had no idea. 
And so he was really a sounding board and a resource and a mentor and later a friend who put wind in my sails that this could be something not only possible, but doable and sustainable. So you jumped right into it. And at what stage did you decide you would take up some form of physical activity again and get training and try and get fit again? Yeah. So, I mean, the first, the first thing was like, I just wanted to lose some weight, man. You know, I was, I was never like morbidly obese. I wasn't like 400 pounds or anything like that. I was carrying around like an extra 50 pounds around the midsection, you know, like a typical 40 year old middle-aged dude who's just been working too much and not taking care of himself. So I was like, I, I want to lose the gut around the midsection. I want to feel like I felt like, you know, when I was a swimmer and I want to be able to enjoy my kids at their energy level. I don't want to walk around lethargic and tired and lazy all the time. But with this new approach to my daily plate, I had this resurgence of energy and I actually had a desire to like move my body once again. You know, it used to feel like a chore or something like, oh, I gotta go. Yeah, I should probably go to the gym or I should probably do that. But suddenly I was like, I want to, like I want to. And I pulled an old pair of running shoes that I had out of the closet and I went back to the pool, jumped in the water, which I hadn't done that forever. Julie bought me a bike for my birthday and I just started enjoying being physical again. There was no agenda of like returning to become, becoming like a competitive athlete. But every day that went by, I realized how happy it made me. Like I was feeling joy. Like I felt like I was slowly becoming myself again. And it really connected me with this, with this sense of who I was. Like swimming was such a huge part of my life and had made me happy in many ways. Like just the simple things of like after a workout, when you feel depleted and you're standing on the pool deck and it's a nice warm, sunny day and you can feel the sun on your shoulders and you're just like, that feels good, man. Like that was what I was looking for. And I was starting to recapture that. And just by virtue of pulling on that thread, like the weight, like the weight came off really quickly without, I didn't really even have to try. I was just moving my body and eating plants, weight disappeared. And I was making like really quick progress. I was like, wow, I could only run like a half an hour, like two weeks ago. And I just went and ran for an hour today and I felt good. And so I just continued to like follow that muse. And I had a kind of breakthrough moment, like three or four months into this, where I went out for a trail run in my neighborhood on a weekday and I was just going to run for like an hour. And, you know, I was like in the zone, you know, I was like in, in like what they call flow state, I guess, where I'm sure you've had those experiences or anybody who's listening, who is doing something that they love where time fades away and you just, you feel like you're in your own personal universe. Yeah. And you just keep going. I just kept going and going and going. I was like, wow, I still have energy. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. And I was running, it was like an out and back trail and about 11, 12 miles into it. I was like, I got to turn around, dude. I didn't bring any water with me. Like this is the desert. Like, what am I doing? You know, I'm going to like pull a calf muscle and you know, I'm out in the middle of nowhere. So I turned around and, and ran back and felt just as strong all the way to the finish and ran like 24 miles that day, which was way further than anything I'd ever done before. And I, I just couldn't believe it. Like, it wasn't like I was trying to do that. You know, it was a natural, you know, manifestation of just these few changes that I'd made in my life. And that was a light bulb moment that made me think like, either I just unlocked a some dormant gene that I didn't know that I had, or there's something about like eating this plant-based diet that's 
not only agreeing with me, but fortifying me in a way that, that I would not have imagined. And that's where I started to think about trying to tackle a challenge. And, and I think it, 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 it made me realize that, that not just myself, but in certain respects, like all of us, like we're, we're kind of blindly going through life while sitting on top of all this potential that we don't even realize that we have. And I just remember making a conscious decision of trying to explore the limits of that potential for myself. So before we jump into where that took you, you've got a very relaxed approach in terms of talking to, I guess, friends or other people about veganism or being plant-based. At that time of your life when you're feeling so good and these these benefits are so profound, what were you like in social social, uh, circumstances? Were you trying to get everyone on board and your friends and sort of shouting from above or have you always had this very humble, laid-back approach to talking about eating a a whole food plant-based diet? Yeah, I've always been pretty laid-back about it. And you have to understand, like, this was a different time. It's not like it is now. And I didn't know anybody who was eating a plant-based diet, let alone an athlete who was doing it. And if it did come up, people would just look at me like I was insane. You know, there were a lot of people saying, wait, because they just knew me as, as the lawyer who, you know, was paunchy and this corporate lawyer guy. And suddenly, like, seemingly overnight to, like, my community of friends, <laughs> they're like, wait, you're doing what? Like, <laughs> you, you plant-based diet and you're going to, like, go do these crazy, like, what are you doing, dude? Have you started drinking again? Like you've lost your mind. Like that sounds irresponsible and unhealthy and potentially harmful. You have little kids, like get your shit together. So, um, no, I was not evangelizing it. I wasn't shirking away from it. If it came up, I was happy to like share what I was doing, but it was still a very untested thing at that point in time. And, and I wasn't sure how long I was going to be doing it or how sustainable it was. Like I, I just, I was pulling on this thread, like I said, and I was, I was going where it was leading me, but it wasn't like I had made some grand statement, like I'm going to do this for the rest of my life, or I'm going to be this athlete or anything like that. I was honestly very confused about how I was living. And what I was finding through physical exercise was a sense of comfort and healing and the quietude that I think I required to really process these questions that were circling in my brain about like what, what I was doing with myself. Cause I was very, I didn't know I, I was still a lawyer and I was like, I knew I was very unhappy doing that. I knew I wanted to find a new way. I didn't know what the answers were, but, but the comfort that I experienced out, you know, alone on the trail, I felt was, was, would provide me with the answers that I was seeking. And that's really what it was and is and has always been about for me is like spiritual growth. And Julie must have been amazed by this transformation at this stage. And like when you came home from that run and almost had like a bit of an epiphany about this, this new way of eating and it was taking your, your exercise and health and fitness to a whole nother level, was, was Julie also, I guess, although she was coming from a different diet to begin with, was she also moving at that stage towards a plant-based diet? Yeah, she was. Um, she didn't go fully plant-based until a fair amount later, but like she was like 98% there or whatever. In terms of her being surprised, no. I mean, she's always been an incredible support system and I could have never done any of the things that I've done without her guidance and, and support and the foundation that, that, that she created. 
like the, the infrastructure that allowed me to like pursue these ideas because she always encouraged me. She's like, you should do this. You should like, it's shocking looking back on it because I think most women or partners would say, what are you doing? Like, cause we started to struggle financially, but she has such a vast capacity for compassion and trust and faith. She was able to see in me, like she's always been able to see the better me within me that I couldn't see. And when I started to like explore these things, even though they seemed uncertain or frightening to certain people, she was like, no, this is good. Like going, like, even though, like, I don't know where this is going to lead. Like she was always the one to say, go do that. That's how you're going to find your answers. Even when money was tight, we didn't know how to pay our bills. Like, yeah, I, I mean, there were so many times where I would have been like, I'd come home and I'd be like, I can't do this anymore. Like, we got to make money. Like, I got to go do this. She's like, no, money will come and go. Like, you need, to, you need to keep pursuing this thing that's driving you in some bizarre way. And that's going to be, that's what's going to provide the solutions. That is like where the new life will be found. And there was no evidence for that. It's whatsoever. amazing that like, it's easy to, to talk about that now. But yeah. like you say, to have the foresight and for her to sort of see that bigger picture. But she, you know, like when I came back from the 24 mile run, I mean, she's completely unperturbed by that. She's like, okay, what? Like, it's, that's not important to her. She's like, whatever. <laughs> you know, like, even when I was training, I'd go out, I'd do a 40 mile run. You know, I was like, what? Oh, okay. Here, like, it's your turn with the kids now. Like, I'm out of here. You know, like, <laughs> so it wasn't until she came out and helped crew Ultraman in 2009 that where she was like, oh, wow. Like, I had no idea this is actually like the kind of thing you're doing. So tell us about that. What was the build-up like to Ultraman? And I mean, what was, when was the first time that you'd heard of Ultraman and decided that you were going to get competitive with your, with your running and swimming and bike riding? I mean, I had never really heard of ultra endurance sports at all. If I had, I, I, I'm sure I would have shrugged it off as apocryphal. I'd heard of Ironman, of course, and had watched the Ironman on TV like so many people. And you know, at 40, that's like, you know, you're, that's a stage in your life where like bucket list, that's like a bucket list thing. And I was certainly one of those people here. I am at 40. I've changed these lifestyle habits. I actually, you know, am, am out running and swimming and cycling already. Like, well, let's see what this whole triathlon thing is all about. Um, and I'd started doing a couple little races here and there for fun and, you know, not showing any prowess, like middle of the pack, dude. And I thought like, oh, an Ironman would be cool. Like that would be something I would like to do. And I started looking into it and didn't understand that these races like sell out a year in advance and are very difficult to get into. I thought you could just go online and like sign up for whatever race you wanted to go to. And after realizing that, like I I was really looking for a, a, a challenge to scare me, but I didn't want to wait a year and I was starting to get more and more fit, but without any structure or understanding about what it what it really means to train for something like that. And I came across an article in a magazine. I think it was Competitor Magazine. And it was about this guy, David Goggins, who was a Navy SEAL. He was very much a self-made guy, overweight, came, came from really difficult upbringing to become this Navy SEAL and had been a power lifter, like a very big guy, certainly not a triathlete or a runner or a swimmer but had decided that he wanted to honor some of his fallen brethren who had died in action and raise money 
for, I think it was the Wounded Warriors Foundation or, or a similar organization. And he was going to do that by way of participating in the 10 most difficult endurance challenges on the planet. And he had just done bad water. And on the wake, like on the heels of that, like even, I think it was just like a couple weeks later, he had completed this race called Ultraman. And this article was about this race Ultraman that I'd never heard of before through the lens of David Goggins participating it in the first time. And I think he ended up second that year. Wasn't really a cyclist, didn't have proper cycling shoes, was like riding in his tennis shoes and had to like tape his foot to the pedal. Like it was a banana story. Mm. And I just remember thinking that is the most insane thing I've ever heard of. Like I had no idea that there was a triathlon longer than an Ironman, first of all. And this guy who didn't come from a triathlon background, not only completed it, but got second. Like what an incredible story this is. But, I, but the thing that really connected with me more than anything was the way that the, the race was described. Not so much as an athletic event, despite it being this world championships, but this spiritual odyssey premised on, on these Hawaiian ideals of Ohana and Okua, you know, Ohana meaning family. And the race director, there was a quote in the article that loosely paraphrased was something like, this is not about winners or losers. This is about everybody, all the crews included, because every athlete has to bring their own crew that travels around. This, it's, it's, a, it's a race that circumnavigates the entire big island of Hawaii over three days. Every single person who participates in this race, crew members and athletes alike, the most important thing is that everybody has a transformative experience, that their life is forever altered by virtue of this journey that we collectively go on together. And that's part of why they keep the race so small. Shane Bacchus, who's been running it forever, limits it to just 35 hand-selected people who are not necessarily the best athletes in the world, but people she thinks are appropriate, who will respect the island, the distance, the race, and are most likely to receive, you know, what is being offered, which is this transformative experience. And I, I, I just thought that's the most beautiful thing I've ever read. I can't believe this. Like, I have to do this. This is exactly what I'm looking for. Because I don't care about podiums or beating people or qualifying times or any of that. Like, I, need, I, was, I wanted to transform my life. Like, I wanted to go on a spiritual odyssey that would test me to my limits, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, at the end of which I would be a different human being. And it was another, like, epiphany light switch moment where I was like, I'm going to find my way onto the starting line of that race, no matter what. And I set about making that happen. Was that an application process? Well, first of all, I was like, well, this is crazy because I've never even done a half Ironman. I have no business whatsoever, even entertaining the notion of doing something like this. Like, but for a couple of days, like I couldn't sleep, like I couldn't stop thinking about it. I could not shake this feeling that I had to do this race, even though it made no logical sense. Like I just was not a mature endurance athlete who should be contemplating something like this. But because I couldn't shake it, I just decided, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to call this woman. And I just went to the website for the race. There was a phone number. I called her up, said, hi, Jane, my name is Rich Roll. I read about this race. I know this sounds totally crazy, but I just like, I just feel like (laughs) I've got to do this. Like I've never, she's like, what have you done? I'm like, I haven't done anything. You know, I have no like resume to give you that would impress you. I mean, I, yes, I was a swimmer in college like forever ago, but that's it. 
And this uh, race is like 500 kilometers or 500? Yeah, it's a 320 miles, however that converts. Yeah. I should probably explain. So the first day, it's a stage race. So the first day, 10 kilometer swim, 90 miles on the bike. The last 20 miles of which are like up to Volcano National Park with like crazy headwinds and a giant climb. Second day, 171 miles on the bike. I don't know what that is in kilometers. Seven three hundred. The third day is a is a double marathon, fifty two point four miles. It's bananas. Like I couldn't believe that people like volunteer for this kind of suffering, and I found myself like trying to volunteer for it. And I was just very frank and honest with Jane, you know, because I wanted her to say, "Forget it," like call me in a year, because then I could at least like put it behind me and just you know chill out. But she said, "Listen." Um, I called very early, like well in advance of when they were accepting applications. And I just said, this is where I'm at. Like, this is where I'm thinking, like, is it it crazy? Like, is this even a possibility? Would you even consider somebody like myself? And she said, to her credit, she could have just said no. But she said, why don't you call me in, in like three months and let me know where you're at, which was amazing. She should have said no, she didn't. And for me, that was like a yes. It was like, that was like enough for me to say, okay, like there isn't, there's an opportunity here. And that's when I hired a coach and I just pretended like she already had let me in. And I started training for the race as if she had accepted me. And my coach knew her. He had trained other athletes for this race. And I said, just, you know, tell me what to do. I'll do everything to prepare for this. And uh, ultimately, you know, he ended up putting in a word for me saying, like, I'll make sure that I have him ready. And, and you know, I lobbied her. I used all my lawyerly skills to, of persuasion and she relented and, and she let me in. So the first year that, yeah, it was 2008, first year I did that race. And I think I, I had six, seven months of, oh, wow. of like formal. And how many, how many hours a day were you roughly training? So that was... You know, it went from 10 hours to 15 hours. I think the, the biggest weeks I had for that year were like 20 hours. I mean, Chris Howell, who's my coach, was very cautious about holding me back and making sure he wasn't giving me too much because I really was, you know, trying to get ready for this without much of a foundation. And it would have been very easy to overtrain me to exhaustion or, or more likely to injure me. So we were very conservative with the run mileage. A lot of the training was on the bike and it was just progressive volume, you know, until, you know, he felt like it wasn't like, Hey, you know, I want you to be competitive. It was, he was training me to, to complete the distance essentially. And he was still doing a bit of part-time sort of legal work at your end. I mean, more than part-time, you know, I was still, you know, trying to make ends meet. I wasn't doing it very well. We were, we were struggling financially. Yeah. Because now I'm like, more interested in riding my bike than I am, you know, <laughs> making, making money to pay the bills. And it was challenging, you know, that was, it was, it was a number of challenging years in there, but yeah, I was trying to balance all of that and, you know, young kids and everything else. So seven months later, you get over there to Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Is it, it's on the main island? The big island. Yeah, the big yeah, island. Yeah, yeah. And you're there with your team and you go, you, you start the race. Was the race everything that you had envisaged it would be? Was it, was it tougher? So. My team, my, my quote unquote team was with my dad, <laughs> a buddy of mine from, from AA, and then a, a cycling friend of mine, none of whom had any sense of like what was going on. It was like, they'd never crewed for anybody at a race like this. None of us knew what we were doing. We were very much like the bad news bears. And my goal was really like, don't die. 
And you're here to sell. It was right around the time I had 10 years of sobriety. And I was here to like celebrate my life and like enjoy this crazy adventure. So I was very conservative in my you know, approach to that race. And it was extremely difficult, but it was also like the most amazing thing I'd ever done. And, and I ended up being the second fastest American. And I think I was 11th that year um, awesome. out of 35. So certainly a surprise to me, I far exceeded what I thought I was going to be able to do. And I think it was a relief to Jane who had taken a chance on me, maybe a surprise to some of the other the other athletes and it delivered on its promise. Like it changed, you know, it changed my life. I, I was so emotional finishing that race. And I remember hugging Jane and just saying, thank you for letting me have this experience. Like it just, it really was extraordinary. Coming to the end of that event, did that give you the thirst to continue to com- compete? Yeah. I mean, I took a break after that because we were struggling financially. I was like, I got to, I got to, be a responsible human being. You know, I can't keep doing this. But then I became really unhappy and the problem wasn't getting solved. And Julie's like, you need to start training again. Like you're not a happy person. Like you need to get back on your bike. And I think it was March, late March or something like that, where I, I, I went out on a ride and I came back and I was like, I want to do that race again. I want to go back. I've got time to prepare. Like what would happen if I actually, you know, basically spent the better part of a year getting ready and showed up not just to complete the distance and avoid death, but actually try to be competitive. So that was the goal. And I was very serious. And my training ramped up to, I think it was 25 hours at its peak that year. And I got super duper fit, showed up at that race, like ready to go. And, and sure enough, like got out of the water 10 minutes ahead of the, the next guy and held that lead all day on the, on the bike. I won, I won stage one by 10 minutes, which was Still to this day, I think the greatest, my greatest athletic achievement. And then crashed on the second day, like about 30, 35 miles into the ride, like slipped out from underneath me on wet pavement and went down really hard on my left knee, took all the skin off my left shoulder. I saw like a scar here from that. And most importantly, broke my pedal. And it was on a section of the race course. There's only one section of the course where the crew vehicles aren't allowed to follow the athletes called the Red Road. Lava has now washed over that section of the island. But it's a very beautiful, pristine area where for like 13 miles, you're on your own. And I was one mile on the point of reconnecting with my crew, who was my wife and my two sons this year, on that year. I wiped out. I was bleeding everywhere. My knee was swelling up. And I had a broken pedal and I was like, I'm done, you know, and I very gingerly got back up and tried to shake it off and got on my bike and pedaled with one leg to that meetup point. And during that one mile period, I just, you know, I checked out. I was like, it's over, man. Like I, you know, I'm not going to do this on one pedal, you know, so, and I'm, I'm hurt. Like, and I just, it's like when you mentally check out from something, you know, and I'm like, I started already thinking about going to the beach the next day and like, oh, well, this is actually kind of a graceful way to bow out of this and not have to complete this, this race. And saw my wife, gave her a hug. And I just said, you know, I'm done. And a crew member for one of the other athletes, this guy, Peter sees me and he's like, Hey man, like what kind of pedal do you need? And I was like, why are you asking me that? Like, 
I'm, my bike's broken, man. I'm out. Of, I'm, I'm like, it's over. And he disappeared and he came back with a brand new pedal in its box, the exact make and model of the pedal that I needed to, to fit my cleat. And he, and he took it out and he put it on my bike and he was like, get back on your bike. So you please. had to, you got to finish. <laughs> yeah. And he's bigger than, he's like a foot taller than me, this guy, like just jacked, you know? And I, and I was like, and there were all these people around because all the crew vehicles were waiting. So there's all these people watching. Pressure. Like, what's he going to do? It's like, I guess I'm getting back on my bike. And that was unbelievably difficult because once you've mentally checked out, it's like, now you got to get back in the game. And like, you know, certainly was no longer in podium contention. All of this shenanigans took, you know, took me, I was, I don't know, 45 minutes, an hour back now. And it was raining and the weather was terrible. And that was the most suffering on a bike like I, I had ever had. And, you know, finished that, finished that ride, took everything out of me. But still, the prospect of running the next day just seemed impossible. I mean, my knee could barely bend. That was day one of three. That was day two. Day two. That was three. day two. Yeah. And, you know, I was hobbling around. I couldn't walk upstairs that night, I remember. And I'm like, there's no way I'm running tomorrow, let alone a double marathon. Are you insane? Like, I iced my knee. I took a bath. I don't know, man. You know, but the next day I showed up at the starting line, if for no other reason than to show solidarity with the other athletes. And when the gun went off, I just tried to jog and it was super stiff and I wasn't sure if it was going to hold up, but it started to loosen up. And you know, I just started, that jog turned into a run and everyone went way ahead of me. Like I started off super, super slow, but the longer I went, the better I felt. And suddenly I felt stable enough and I started just passing people and worked my way back up the field to finish that. I, I know I was the fastest American and was sixth overall. I don't know where I finished in the double marathon, but I know, I think I like even split it or maybe even negative split it. Like, cause I ran the first, I know I ran the first half marathon, like super slow. So that was, yeah, that was amazing. And, you know, people say to me like, well, do you think you could have been on the podium if you hadn't crashed or what do you think you could have done? Are you disappointed? Like, no, man, you know, like I said, like it was, it's never been about that for me. It's always been about how can I grow as a human being? How can I learn more about myself? And as an athlete, when everything goes your way, like, yeah, that's awesome. It's good for the ego, but you don't really learn that much. It's only when things don't go your way and you're faced with those obstacles and you're compelled to make a decision in the moment. And that's your teachable opportunity. Like that's what reveals character. And that was this kind of experience that I was seeking. And that's exactly what it delivered to me. And I wouldn't change anything about it. Hey friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes, along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you will find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. In your memories, that second race, sort of the one that stands out as having the most profound effect on you given that adversity. That you had on that. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, I went, you know, everyone wants to hear about Epic Five, but honestly, like, you know, I think that race in 2009 was, was my athletic peak and, and really where I learned the most about, about who I am and what I'm capable of. 
want to want to move into more of the present day, but yeah. Epic Five, you mentioned it there, and possibly some of the listeners haven't heard of it. And it's a crazy, crazy race. Can you just explain what what Epic Five is all about? So Epic Five is the brainchild of Jason Lester, who is a guy that I that I trained with and spent a lot of time with preparing for and racing Ultramans. And he's an amazingly inspirational figure. He he does all of these crazy ultra endurance races without the functional use of his right arm. It's not an amputee, but his right arm is sort of limp. He has to like tape it to his handlebars. He has to do these swims with one arm with his with his non-functional arm taped you know, to his torso. Like it's unbelievably Incredible. inspiring what he's able to do. And he's gone on to, he ran across China and he's running across Europe right now. He's still out there like tackling amazing challenges. Anyway, it was his idea. He recruited me into his hairball scheme of attempting to do five Ironmans on five Hawaiian islands in five days. An Ironman a day on each of the five Hawaiian islands. And at first, after 2009 Ultraman, I was like, dude, I'm done. Like I learned everything I needed to learn. I got to get back to my life. And it was like, no, man, we got to do this, you know? And the more I thought about it, it just seemed like such an amazing challenge in a world in which it seemed like everything had already been done. Like every mountain has been scaled and people have run across the Sahara Desert and kayaked across the Pacific, like every crazy thing has been accomplished. And here was something that kind of seemed obvious. It was amazing. No one had ever tried to do it before. And I just knew like, I wouldn't be satisfied. I couldn't really check the box and say, I have explored my potential to the utmost limit unless I tried to do this. And so, yeah, in 2010, we set about doing it with a skeleton crew of just a few people trying to help us with duct tape and band-aids showing up really not knowing what to expect other than the fact that we were going to go on this crazy adventure and whatever would happen was going to happen. And we were met with all kinds of unforeseen obstacles and variables. And ultimately we were not able to complete it in five days. You know, certain setbacks having to do with logistics and mechanical errors and all kinds of things pushed us back, but we got it done in like six and a half days and we're the first people to do it. So it's now become a race and people do it every year. And they do it faster and faster and faster and women do it. And, and it's like, once you break that tape, then other people are like, oh, it's doable. Up for the and challenge. Then, yeah. It's amazing to see people go there. And then, you know, then you have the Iron Cowboy who does 50 Ironmans in 50 states in 50 days who just went and 10X the whole thing. So, and I love that. It's fantastic. Let's move into present day. At the start, you spoke about your training and how it, you've dialed it down a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I know I've listened to a number of your podcasts where you've mentioned or there's been doctors mentioning around, is it, is it healthy to do a lot of endurance things as you're getting older? Mm-hmm. What do you, where, where do you sit with that? What are your plans with your, your endurance training um, just from a recreational personal point of view, but also from a competitive point of view? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of factors that get considered into how much I train, how hard I train. There is certainly, you know, there is some evidence to suggest that ultra endurance training in the long haul might not be the healthiest thing, you know, going and doing Epic five or doing Ultraman, like these are not making you, you know, a healthier person in the long term. They're not sustainable over the course of a long life. I don't think, um, I'm glad that I did them. And I think all of these 
affairs have made me a better person and ultimately a healthier person. And I think, you know, daily fitness is at the crux of who I am and always will be, you know, going out and working out, endurance training, but also strength and speed training. All of these things I think are super important. For me, it's become much more about the message and how I can be of service. So, you know, I had the tremendous fortune of, of my story, you know, becoming sort of capturing certain people's attention and interest and got some media coverage. And that led to the opportunity to write this book, Finding Ultra, that was well-received, that has kind of put me on the map in a way that I, I it was never my goal or never my, you know, aspiration. Like I said, I was on this personal spiritual journey. But with that, you know, I've, I felt a certain responsibility to use the platform that I've been gifted to try to make the world a bit of a better place. And I started the podcast in, in 2012, several months after the book came out, um, as a means of continuing the conversation that the book started about sobriety, addiction, healthy lifestyle, plant-based diet, advocacy the environment, all of these things. And it's really motivated by this decision that I made to to make my life about service. And what's beautiful about the podcast is, and I know you've experienced this, it's not about you. You know, it's like I get to to deflect Mm. the attention that's being put on me and place it on other people that I think deserve that notice and attention put the spotlight on them and try to elevate them and what they're trying to express and accomplish. And that's incredibly gratifying, you know, Um, and then have people receive it well and have it impact people in a positive way has just been like transformative in my life. So now when I wake up in the morning and have to make decisions about how I invest my time and energy, it's really the calculus is like, how is this having a positive impact on the world? How am I carrying the message? So whether it's a podcast, a speech, a book, a video, or a race, all of those things get factored in. And I'm now in a position where I have a lot of cool opportunities to spread the message in interesting ways. But I don't think that training 20 to 25 hours a week is the best way to do that. I wanted to do a race when I turned 50 to show people that I can still go out and kill it at 50 and everybody else can to kind of reframe how people think about aging, which is why I did the Otillo Swim Run World Championships last year. The one in Sweden? In Sweden, yeah. yeah. It was like this ultra 75 kilometers, 52 transitions running across like 36 islands in the Baltic Sea. It was crazy. It was awesome. And I loved it. And I trained very hard for that. This year, I'm not training so hard because I want to really increase the impact that I can have in other ways through various forms of media. So I've dialed it back considerably. I think the races have their place. And I think athletes have a very important role and voice in this movement because people pay attention to what you do, not what you say. And athletes are performative. When they go out, when Nimai strikes a pose or Griff Whalen, you know, catches a touchdown pass or Kyrie Irving, you know, scores a three-pointer or whatever it is, people pay attention to that. It's very, very powerful. So I will always stay connected to sport. And next year, you know, I'm probably going to do something interesting again, but it has to be sustainable. And that means that I have to take breaks and I have to, that pendulum has to swing back and forth to make sure that 
I'm attending to all the important areas of my life. You know, I have four kids and I've got responsibilities and I have people that work for me. And if I'm training all the time, then, you know, that means less podcasts or no podcasts and all the other things that I'm doing. And does your, does your diet change a lot when you go into training? Well, what do you, what do you normally, what does Rich Roll normally eat? I mean, well, first of all, I think I'm much more mind. I'm probably, I have a more acute mindfulness about what I'm eating when I'm training because you're just, everything is firing on different cylinders. You're paying more attention to the minutia. I think when you're aiming for a performance goal, I mean, I'm always plant-based, whole food plant-based, but I'm more likely to, to, you know, indulge in vegan junk food when I'm not training for something than when I am. So the biggest difference is just attunement to quality and also volume. Like obviously when you're training more, um, you're, you're eating more, but the fundamentals stay the same. So, you know, a day in the life of food is, is very simple and basic for me. You know, like I said, start the day with a green smoothie, dark leafy greens. You know, a lot of times it just depends on what we happen to have at the house because with lots of kids, I never yeah. know, but you know, we always have tons of produce. So it's some combination of fruits and raw fruits and vegetables. And that's usually enough for me to get me through the morning. Like I'm not a huge big time morning breakfast eater. If I'm training really hard and I'm super hungry, maybe like gluten-free toast with almond butter or a bowl of quinoa and berries and coconut milk or almond milk or something like that. Snacks, it's usually just fruit and nuts, like tons of bananas, nuts, almonds, walnuts, things like that. I keep stashes in my car. So I'm always like, you know, kind of munching on things here and there. Pumpkin seeds for iron. A lot of citrus. Um, lunch, I keep it light, usually like a salad. And the volume of that salad just depends on how hungry I am. Maybe put some lentils on that or some beans or some quinoa and then raw vegetables. And dinner is the biggest meal that I usually eat. I love Mexican food. So lots of rice and beans. It's like I could eat rice and beans and avocado with hot sauce like every day. You know, and if if my wife's out of town, I may eat that every day for like a week. You know, I, I don't need things to be super gourmet. Uh, fortunately, my wife is an amazing cook. So when she's making meals, they tend to be a little bit more uh, elaborate. But I stick to the basics. You know, like we said at the outset, this is pauper food. You know, I can eat spinach and broccoli and asparagus and, and Brussels sprouts, lots of beans, brown rice, quinoa, grains, lots of lentils, things like that. And just try to mix it up with a little bit of variety, but, you know, really, really simple. Yeah, that's great. You know, your, the take-home message there is that you're an ultra athlete, um, but everything that you've explained there that you eat is super achievable mm-hmm. uh, for most people. Yeah. Yeah, we went last night looking for a Mexican bowl at Real Food Daily. Uh-huh. They took it off the menu. Did they? Yeah. I haven't been to Real Food Daily in a while. Yeah, it's good there. Um, they took the one in, they closed the one in Santa Monica though, right? Where you want at the one. Oh uh, yeah. Robertson? My brother James said that. Yeah. yeah. In West Hollywood, right? Yeah. We were at the one in West Hollywood. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah I haven't been to that one in a while. No, it's good. You That's can build your own bowl. So we, I think James, James uh-huh. made his own Mexican bowl in the end. <laughs> and now there's a real food daily in the, in LAX, yeah. in the American Airlines terminal, pretty which cool. is amazing. So it's one of the reasons why I try to always fly American because I know I'll be in that terminal. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's unbelievably expensive. Yeah. It's like, I think I got like, I don't remember what it was, but I didn't get very, like, I think I got like a breakfast burrito and a green juice and it was like 28 mm. bucks or something like Everything that. Everything in the airport goes out a bit, right? You're talking about your podcast before. Your podcast started in 2012. Mm-hmm. How has it changed the landscape? I guess the whole podcast landscape from then to now. You know, you've got one of the top 
health and wellness, I guess, podcast globally, but definitely in the USA. Do you find it different now recording podcasts to back then? It's a great question. When did you start yours? This year. This year. Okay. Yeah. So what's interesting is that I started it in, two, in late 2012. And at that time, it was not cool to have a podcast. Like people were not clamoring to start podcasts. It was actually kind of janky in that era. You had to, it's pre-iPhone and pre-streaming. So in order to listen to a podcast, you had to go on your desktop or your laptop. You had to find the episode that you wanted and you had to download it. And then you had to bounce it to your MP3 player, your iPod, right? So you had to really like be intentional about like creating your playlist of podcasts. I discovered them like in 2008. They really kind of came online in 2006 as like a hobbyist thing. In 2008, when I started training for Ultraman, I realized like, okay, I'm going to be on my bike for like six hours today. Like I can't listen to music. Audiobooks were still like getting them on an iPod. Like I, I tried that a little bit, but I discovered podcasts. And although it was new, there were some people that were doing interesting things. Like Adam Carolla was a very early adopter, Kevin Smith, you know, This American Life. There were some NPR shows. And I started listening to podcasts and I fell in love with them. And I was like, this is an amazing medium. Nobody I knew was listening. To, nobody was listening to podcasts then, but I couldn't, I was like, this is fantastic. You can actually curate your entire listening experience. And I have not listened to the radio since 2008, ever since that kind of epiphany moment and spent hours and hours and hours listening over the years between you know, 2008 to 2012, all this training time all podcasts, all the time. I tried on, you know, I listened to a lot of different shows to try to figure out what I liked. And I think just, you know, in my unconscious mind, I absorbed a lot of it. I never thought about having my own podcast, but after Finding Ultra came out and did the whole book launch thing, and, and, and then, you know, we were still going, we were going through this incredibly challenging financial dismantling, found ourselves in Kauai, this friend, who has a place called Common Ground. He's since sold it, but which was this old guava plantation on the North Shore of Kauai, had hired Julie and I to come and stay with him. He was trying to figure out what to do with this unbelievable property that he had that had an amazing restaurant on. He wanted to like make it a more community-oriented thing. And for some reason, he was like, I think you can help me. I had nothing going on. Like The phone was not ringing. I was not getting opportunities. We were broke. And he was like, come and stay here. So our whole family went to Kauai and we were living in these yurts on this organic farm. So it was like this crazy adventure. But I was also, I got, I very quickly got like island fever. Like I'd worked really hard to create this book and I was trying to make an impact. And I found myself on this like island in the middle of nowhere and I, and, and like away from my friends and and in the wake of the book coming out, I was like, well, what's my next thing? And I just needed like to do something creative for myself. And that's where I thought like, well, maybe you should, maybe you should start a podcast. There weren't that many people doing any things that were that interesting in the health space. And I was like, I know a few people, maybe this could be interesting. And really on a lark, like a whim, you know, just use the mics that my sons had, their musicians. Like we had like some mics and some chords and stuff like that. And I spent a whole day online trying to figure out like how you start a podcast and how you get it on iTunes. Like 
it seems like it should be easier than mm. it is. It's still like there's it's a bunch of hoops. Hard, yeah, it's, right? it's harder than than I think most. people I spent think. most of the day <laughs> the first yeah. time researching what was going on between like having a, a hosting company and right, like what is that? And you got to do all this stuff. I remember watching Pat Flynn, who has a show called Smart Passive Income. He did a series of videos like on everything you need to do, and he walks you through every single step. That's and I cool. just wrote it all down. I did exactly <laughs> what he said. And uh, and recorded a show and and like got it up and it was just my wife and I talking. I had no agenda. I didn't know whether I was going to do a second episode, but it was so fun. I was like, "This is great. Let's do it again tomorrow." We did like <laughs> one the next day, and I was like, "This is cool." And I think the first episode got I don't know five hundred downloads or something like that. And I was like, 500 people listen to this." My mind was blown. Yeah. Wow. And I was just hooked. And I was like, I, I want to do this. And it's funny if I go back and listen to that first episode that's recorded with terrible mics in a warehouse where there's so much echo, you can barely listen to it. But I remember saying like, this is not, like, I want to do this, but for anybody who's listening, this is not going to be a triathlon training podcast. Like I'm not interested in that. Like I want to explore how to grow in other areas and have people on who, who are expert in a myriad of fields and try to share their wisdom. And and I think it's really stayed true to that. And I think I benefited, like at that time, because so few people were starting new shows and, and the iTunes algorithm is probably similar to what it was back then. The, you know, you, it was easy to get on the new and noteworthy and how they, you know, how they overinflate new shows to create discovery for new, new audiences. Like I benefited from that. And very quickly, it was like one of the top shows in health from the get-go, mm-hmm. even though I was like, I was like, oh my God, like, I think like the first month it was in, it was like in the top 30 or 40 podcasts on all of iTunes, even though it wasn't, it was getting paltry downloads because of the way they overinflate that. And I didn't know that. I was like, oh my God, like, wow. So I benefited from the era and from being, you know, I wouldn't call myself an early adopter because pretty early people have been doing it for six years prior to me, but, but early given what's going on now. And I would have never imagine that would it, it would have exploded to the extent that it has. It's great. Like I've, I'm so excited that people are finally realizing what I've been trying to evangelize for many years. And I think a lot of that has to do with the technology becoming more and more seamless. I mean, still, I'm sure you meet people every day who are like, yeah, I've heard of podcasts, but like, how do you do that? And you're like, well, you have an iPhone? And they're like, yeah. Well, you know that purple thing? They're like, well, I've never, I don't know what that is. You know, it's like, there's still a learning curve, I think, for a lot of people, but it's becoming more and more integrated. And I think that's super excited, exciting, but I benefited from getting in early and kind of establishing myself and, and doing this little bit of a land grab that I've been able to try to hold on to, but it's getting more competitive. And I think that's great. So many talented people like yourself are moving into this space. And I think there's room for everybody's voice. And I think it's amazing. I think it's amazing. I think for people that are contemplating starting a podcast, I think there's more pressure on new creators to come up with a little bit of a different take. Like if you're going to just start an an interview podcast now, it's going to be very difficult unless you're a celebrity. Like if you're Dak Shepard, you can do a show and he's very good at it. And I'm glad that he's doing well. I enjoy his show, but it's, it's easier for him. If you're somebody who people don't know, and you're going to do a format that a lot of people are already doing. I think you're climbing a, a tall mountain. So people are coming up with different takes on how to do, cre- you know, creative shows. Be and, a little bit more unique. Yeah. And, and you're seeing at the top, these shows that are so 
beautifully produced that require teams of people like the true crime stuff and, you know, the revisionist histories and, and, you know, the shows that Gimlet's putting out. Like, I think we're at the very beginning of a real renaissance in, in audio. And I think what's unique about podcasting and so compelling is that it's the one form of media that you can enjoy while you're doing something else, right? And the more people discover that, the more you're seeing the adoption rates go through the roof. And you've had nearly 400 episodes right now. Yeah, we're coming up on 400. So, so many, so many brilliant, incredible guests. Are there, are there, is there one or a couple that stand out where you sort of walked in not expecting much and then through the conversation you just had your mind blown? Mm. You're asking me to choose amongst my... <laughs> it's a tough question, hard, right? <laughs> you know, I love all my guests. Say that up front. But uh, I think my sweet spot and, and where the show really distinguishes itself and shines. And my favorite thing to do is to have somebody on that no one's ever heard of who has an amazing story and allow them to, you know, who, who might not be getting any attention or whatever and go, wait till you guys hear this, you know, and then be able to share that and have people go, oh my God, you know, and I've had a couple of those experiences and they're, they're very gratifying because I feel like that was a cool thing. Like I found this person and I was able to like, let that person tell their story, maybe for the first time, you know, like Josh Lajani, who's a guy who tweeted me. I mean, he was one of the first, he was our very early episode. He tweeted me as before and after pictures and it blew my mind. Like, who is this guy? Like, I couldn't believe the transformation. He did it on a plant-based diet. He was training for his first marathon. And just on a flyer, I knew nothing about this guy other than that he lived in Louisiana. And I was like, I'm going to, I want to talk to this guy. And we did a Skype call and I was totally unprepared for how unbelievable his story is and his facility for telling it. And that was groundbreaking for me, uh, you know, uh, early on in this journey. And that became, I think to this day, is one of the most popular episodes that I've ever done. It came on again. I've done a recent episode with him that I haven't put up yet. And he's become a great friend. And, and now he's really shouldered the mantle and has become this advocate for this lifestyle that we love and, and has stepped into it. And What's gratifying for me is not only that I got to share his story, but also put wind in his sails for him to go out in the world and stake his claim and, and be, be the advocate that I, I always knew that he could. So I find that's, that's cool. particularly gratifying. You know, and there's lots of examples of people like that. I mean, David Clark has a similar story. This year, I had John McAvoy on, who was this guy who grew up in East London in this crime syndicate family, was born and bred to be a bank robber his whole life, became a bank robber, gets a life sentence in the wake of uh, a heist gone awry that ended up in, you know, in a shootout with the police and serving a life sentence. He's in solitary confinement for years. He ends up finding fitness in prison on the rowing machine. He sets indoor world records on, in rowing and, and finally gets parole and has become a professional Ironman. He's the only Nike-sponsored professional Ironman in the world. And the way this guy told his story, I mean, he's sort of well-known in the UK, but a lot of American and international audiences have never heard of this guy. And the way he told his story was so captivating and, and, and inspiring. Like it's those stories I think that I, that I really love the most. And I know that you, you mentioned recently you were doing, you did a podcast with John Joseph. Mm -hmm. 
and you lost the recording. Is that the only time that's happened or is that, has that happened before? It happened one other time. I did it. I did a show with Dr. Michael Greger. This was also really early on and somehow the file got corrupted and I lost that one. So out of 400, I've lost two. It's not so bad. But to lose that one with John after doing this for six and a half years, I'm like, how did that happen? What happened was that Zoom, the the memory card filled up, but it didn't give me any indication that it stopped recording and we could still hear each other. I've had so that I, done before. Yeah, so that's, that's yeah, how that went. It's happened down. to me once mm. in New York. So now never again, right? Like no. you always check it. 100%. <laughs> or you get the memory card that has like 400 hours of uh, audio time on it. Let's shift just to some slightly bigger picture thinking. And I know that you are quite passionate about sustainability and you've had a number of guests that have spoken about sustainability and the, the UN has come out in the last week or so and the, you know, the headlines have been about climate change. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump's come out. He is traditionally or previously... Uh, I guess he's he's sort of more spoken about it being a bit of a hoax or not really. He's not sure how how much truth there is to it. And now he seems like he might be backpedaling a tiny bit. What's your stance on climate change, things like coal energy, taxes for carbon or what? You know, is it a hoax? Is there things that we that top level governments should be doing? And, and at a practical level, what should people be doing if they do care about the planet? Climate change is definitely not a hoax. Smarter people than I have reached a consensus that it is very real. Not only is it real, it's extremely acute. I think we're in an arms race right now. We have people like yourself and communities, pockets of people who are very active and committed to living more sustainably, to advocating for legislative, regulatory, and policy changes and consumer habits and corporate behavior that will contribute to the reversal of the damage that we're creating. Uh, At the same time, we have uh, a political structure that transcends Trump, by the way. Systemically, we have a system that facilitates the desires of big business over the long-term well-being of the planet and the populace of the planet. Who is going to win this arms race has yet, to be, uh, has yet to be seen. I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic about young people. But I think when you look at that UN report and you read the articles that are now coming out over the course of the last week in the New York Times and the Guardian, it lays bare just how severe and significant this problem is. I got into eating plant-based purely out of selfish reasons. I didn't want to be fat and I didn't want to feel lousy. And then I wanted to perform as an athlete. Now my perspective has changed. It has evolved. Now the driving force behind the advocacy that I do is fueled by sustainability concerns, ethical concerns, And simply, what's right? Human beings are not well designed to think and act long term. And now we're being tested as a species. If we don't get this right, we're going to have serious problems in the not too distant future. They're projecting that by 2040, we're going to be at a tipping point that 
is potentially irreversible. And yet you walk down the street and people are just going about their business. And that can be very disheartening. So I think it is important that we respect the power of mediums like this to speak truth to power and to advocate for change, if not for ourselves, for future generations. And we, when we look at the culprits and what is contributing to this compounding problem, there are a few very obvious problems that we have. At the top of the list is animal agriculture, which is contributing to mass species extinction. It is uh, contributing more greenhouse gas emissions than all of transportation combined. It is polluting our water table. It's uh, acidifying our oceans. It requires a tremendous amount of resources, land, and water to function. It's unbelievably inefficient. And it is contributing to the suffering of billions of animals every year. For what? For what? You adopt a plant-based lifestyle and it's like taking the red pill in the matrix. The lights go on and you realize we're going about this all wrong. If you were an alien and you came down to the planet and you said, take me to your leader and show me how you make food for people. And they said, well, this is how we do it. You look at factory farms, they're very efficient in what they do. They will blow an animal up to its largest size in the shortest amount of time with the least amount of resources to create the most uh, calories for a human being to consume. But it's still a middleman. If we opt out of the animal and go straight to the source, which is the plant foods, we will save a huge amount of land Mm. and water and inputs and resources while reducing the carbon emissions and taking out uh, an insurance policy for our oceans and our water table and, and the perpetuation of these species that are disappearing from the planet. And I can't stress enough how important this issue is. And I think what happens with people and why we have trouble adapting our behavior for the long term is because we feel disempowered. We feel like our vote doesn't count, our voice doesn't count. There's nothing I can do. These systems are so huge. You know, Monsanto's lobbying arm on Washington, D.C. is going to get what it wants. There's just absolutely nothing that I can do about it. And yet there is something that you can do about it. Every single day you make choices about the food that you put on your plate and you put in your mouth. And those choices have a profound impact long term and downstream on your fellow human beings, the animal friends that we share this planet with, and the resources that we collectively share. And if you can vote with your dollar and vote with your plate to opt out of the animal agriculture, factory farming, industrial complex. Nobody's a fan of factory farming. Even Tucker Carlson from Fox News speaks out about factory farming. This is not a partisan issue. It is an ethics issue and it is an issue about right and wrong. If you opt out of that and focus on eating plant-based foods close to your natural state, it is a lifestyle that checks all the boxes. It's more sustainable for the planet, kinder to the planet, certainly kinder to the animals. And it's what's best for your health. If we look at what's going on health-wise right now, we're a very prosperous nation, and yet we've never been more sick as a society. One out of every three people will die of a heart attack. 50% of Americans are uh, diabetic or pre-diabetic, and obesity rates are through the roof. Something like 80% 
of adults in the United States are, are uh, considered obese, if not morbidly obese. These statistics are bananas. It's the food, right? It's the food. Stop eating the food that's killing us and we will solve all of these problems. It's so simple. And on top of that, completely doable. And you have to make no trade-offs. Like if I can go and do Epic Five and do Ultraman and Nimai Delgado can, can like strike the poses that he strikes and all of these athletes that are out there killing it, there is no reason why you cannot perform at your peak be happy, be fulfilled, do what's right for yourself and do what's right for others by just making this switch. Beautifully put. I did say this would be an ultra podcast. Yeah, it's all right, man. Not, I not, love it. Not quite as long as um, the, the Chris Cresser and Dr. Joel Khan uh, on Joe Rogan. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. Did you listen to that? I didn't listen to the whole thing. I listened to enough of it. That was a marathon. Of it. Yeah. <laughs> now, I thought it may be good to just summarize some of your top resources. Obviously you've got your podcast, but in terms of documentaries, I know that you recently did the premiere of the Fiona Oaks mm-hmm. documentary for people listening and they want to know more. They want to, they want to watch more. They want to read more. They want to listen to more. What are, what are your top recommendations? Uh, well, my podcast is really the tip of the spear of everything I do. Rich World Podcast. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. I started filming the show over the past year. So when I'm not doing podcasts on the road, we have been documenting them. So you can find all of those on YouTube as well. And I I throw up the occasional vlog here and there. I I wouldn't consider myself a YouTuber, but I've got a few videos up there that people might enjoy. Books, Finding Ultra is my memoir. And we've got three cookbooks, The Plant Power Way, Plant Power Way Italia, and Julie's book, This cheese is nuts. She's become a wizard of creating plant-based cheese. She's really mastered it. Got a copy of that book. These are amazing. Awesome. So we're working on creating a commercialized cheese line, which is exciting. Definitely check out Running for Good, which is Keegan Coon's new documentary. Keegan is one half of the dynamic duo that created Cowspiracy and What the Health. And his new movie is is a departure from from those kind of movies because it's just a portrait of Fiona Oaks, who's an amazing ultra runner. Uh, multiple world record holder. And it kind of follows her life as she tries to complete Marathon de Sable. And I was, I was, uh, I provided the voiceover in that movie, which was really fun. And uh, what else, man? I don't know. That covers it. Maybe maybe a documentary on yourself one day. Uh, We'll see. (laughs) We'll see. All right, mate. Well, we better wrap up here. I'd like to thank you very much for sitting down today here in LA to finally introduce you to the Plant Proof community, many of whom know you, but some who may not. It's been nothing short of brilliant to get to know you better, and and I'm sure the listeners will take a lot away from your message. I personally really admire how passionate you are about serving others, and I look forward to getting you back on the show to dive into things like climate change, animal agriculture, nutrition for performance and other bigger picture issues. I really feel like we could talk for hours and hours. And of course, hopefully we can get you back out to Oz and catch up soon in Bondi. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for taking the time. It's been great talking to you and keep doing what you're doing, man. We need all the voices. And I think the impact that you're having is is tremendous and, and very cool to watch. So uh, keep doing it, man. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Wow, 
How good was that, guys? I've heard Rich's story several times and read his book, but like I said at the start, I think it's such a good journey to learn from that it's always worth coming back and hearing him tell it again. I'm looking forward to connecting with Rich in the not-too-distant future to record a follow-up ep and dive into some deeper issues around sustainability, animal agriculture, and how we can all work together to make this world a better place, as well as finding your purpose, your North Star, so to speak, and how to act on this. I'll see you next week, my friends. 